Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit Tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes and use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your cue. Welcome to the Hunt of War podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 81, Stephen Athey, Live Wild, Eat Wild. On this episode of Hunt of War, Nick is joined by Stephen Athey, author of Live Wild, Eat Wild, a self-proclaimed good cook and terrible hunter. Stephen writes about his hunts and then follows up with recipes and write-ups about the dishes he and his wife make from that animal. Stephen has a true passion for being connected to his food and the process that it takes. We go deep on a bare-bones home butchery setup, contaminating wild ground with domestic fat, and an incredible story of a once-in-a-lifetime Utah bison hunt. Make sure you tune into this one because it's a good one. Quick note before we start. Recording outside brings its benefits, but also its challenges. So you're going to hear from Hazel in the background, my dog. Not much I could do about it. But anyway, on with the show. Well, hey folks. Beautiful night here in Michigan. I actually didn't want to record inside. I'm sitting out on the porch. The uh, the grill still smoldering after uh, making some dinner. I'm still kind of getting a few whiff, whiffs of the uh, the smoke from over there. I added a few chips onto it. It is just a beautiful night. I bet you it's 72 degrees, and I bet it holds here for a good minute. Like I feel like fall has finally kicked in. 
Tonight, though, we're going to talk with someone on the complete other side of the country. Um, found this guy on Instagram, and I tell you, he has an amazing story. I found his first saga where he and his father went and hunted down a bison and then takes you through the whole ser- the whole story of 20 years of putting in for tags and finally getting a chance to take one down and then to butcher it at home. He's the, uh, the blog author of Live Wild, Eat Wild. I am here tonight with Stephen Athey. Stephen, thank you for jumping on the podcast. And how are things over there in, it's, is it Utah that you're in? Absolutely. I'm over here in Utah. I'm just south of Salt Lake. Uh, things are doing really great here, actually. Fairly similar weather to what you're having. A little bit on the warmer side, but we're even supposed to get into the low 50s, high 40s for the nighttime temp in the next couple of days. So fall is definitely in the air here, too. Excellent. Excellent. How's the how's the fire situation near you? Uh, being a, a Midwesterner, it's hard to place where and where all these fires are at. What's what are things going around Salt Lake City? Are you guys in the vicinity of a fire, or are you just getting more of the smoke from Oregon and California? How are things over there? Smoke is the big issue that we're facing. That All year this year, we're at record drought levels of reservoirs across the state are all the way down into 25% capacity or even less. I mean, water is almost non-existent statewide. At the beginning of the fire season, there was concern everywhere that we were just going to go up in flames across the board. But our state has been doing phenomenally well at keeping the fire issue under control. But the fires out in Washington, Oregon, California, with the jet stream winds that we have blowing everything to the east, is stacking all the smoke up on the Wasatch Mountains right around us, which, you know, they're going up over 10,000 feet for the mountain range right here, which acts as as a giant smoke wall to catch everything and just blankets the entire valley in smoke from fires that are hundreds of miles away. Wow. Wow. We were, even here in Michigan, we were getting, like, we had, like, a smoke day. And this was, like, early on, I think in 2020, where last year, um, kind of the same scenario, but, like, we had smoke just kind of filtering in and you could just see it. It was just a haze and it was incredible to think like this is smoke from across the country that's making its way here. I can't imagine just like looking at the foothill, being on the foothills of those mountains and just seeing this billow, like basically come down like an, like an avalanche of just smoke. That's, that's crazy. It's been something almost all summer long we've had the issue that, you know, normally I've got, I'm on the west side of the valley, so I've got fantastic views of the mountains to the east of me to see everything from north to south. And when it's especially smoky, I can't even see the mountains at all. It's completely blocked out. But just within the past couple weeks or so, it's finally cleared up to where air quality is at least manageable and, and trending in the right direction is we get into fall and things clear up and the fires die down. Good deal. Good deal. Well, like I mentioned earlier, author of a of a blog, doing some some writing. Do you do you enjoy writing or are you more of one that like likes to have a like a conversation and then this is just a res, like the blog is a result of 
just conversations that you have? Is it, or is this just your medium that you enjoy to talk about wild game and your pursuits of uh, natural protein? It's a little bit of both. I always like to say that, you know, nothing can really trump a one-to-one conversation to have with somebody as much as the, the written form can be a great tool for individuals. And the biggest benefit is that it's so easy to consume for people to look at, you know, whether they're on their computer, their phone, anywhere else, if they're middle of the day, late at night, they can read things to their heart's content. Whereas listening in is a little bit more of a challenge for folks, but when it really comes down to it, talking to people, whether it be on the phone or one-to-one is really my preferred method because that's where I can really dive into things, really suss out what we're trying to talk about and really get the message across. Gotcha. I agree with you. I'm more of a conversationalist. I'm a terrible writer. I, I write how I talk. And so there was a lot of college papers that, you know, got brought back to me. Like you can't talk in first person on a research paper. You can't, you can't use the tense that you're using here. And so I was constantly editing that. Uh, so yeah, to have someone on the other side here blogging, writing out their ideas, writing out their stuff. Um, I think you're, you're absolutely correct. There's, there's been a lot of times where just before bed, um, I'm consuming an article from you or just checking in on what's going on on your Instagram and really going through those comments on, or going through your uh, commentary on what you've said about that image. Um, how did you get started creating a blog focused on the outside, focused on living in the wild and at the same time eating wild? What generated this idea for you? So I've been a lifetime hunter, grew up hunting deer and elk as a kid here in Utah, born and raised here. And the food side of things from a wild game standpoint was never really the primary focus of mine. I'll be the first to admit that. And largely that comes from just lack of experience of knowing how to cook it and making it taste good. What I thought was venison steak growing up was a fairly well done piece of meat with a bunch of Worcestershire sauce drizzled on top or some barbecue sauce. And that was that. And it was fine. It, it wasn't too bad, but it wasn't something that I really looked forward to. It was just kind of the, the side effect of going hunting, which that's what I really enjoyed doing. I kind of fell away from hunting for a little while into my early adult years, but then kind of got back into it. And I'll be the first to credit my wife actually was kind of the main catalyst behind me focusing on the food side, because being a newly married individual, if I'm going to be going out and going hunting and bringing home dead animals and food and put in the freezer, I didn't want to be that kind of guy that is flopping a dead animal on the counter and saying, here you go, honey, figure it out. (laughs) And if I wanted to have her blessing on it, then I was going to have to take it upon myself to cook it myself and make it taste as good as I possibly could so that a, she would eat it and B she would support my ongoing activities running away from home. Wow. Great. I feel like we've got like this kinship right there with that whole story. My, I grew up in the outdoors just like you. I was late to the hunting game, though. I didn't start hunting until actually that I was when when we were married. And so I'm jumping in with my buddies, and I I bring down my deer, and I now expose her to this whole world of what hunting is, and how pretty soon we're going to bring a carcass back home. Uh, 
luckily I had a couple facilities at my hand that I never had to like walk into the kitchen and flop the the dead animal out there. But to to my wife's credit, she was a champ and she was really open minded to the idea of uh, you know getting our own food and then making things taste amazing. She's she actually really loves venison now. Um, but like you said, it had to be done in a way where I didn't scare her away from it. Was your wife similar in the fact that she was completely new to the hunting world, and this was like a an easing her in to what it, to uh, the experience she was going to have? Fairly to an extent. So neither none of her brothers or parents or anybody hunted in her family, but both of her parents. Fer- her parents grew up in rural Idaho and parents were far or grandparents were farmers in Idaho. And so they were raised around it as, you know, butchering their own animals on the farm. Grandparents hunted lots and uncle uncles had hunted plenty. So it wasn't anything that she was opposed to, but just hadn't had any firsthand exposure to it. And one added benefit that I actually had is what's funny is I've never worked in a restaurant a day of my life. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm not a professional chef. I've never had culinary training, but my wife actually did work for many, many years in a high end restaurant. And so she would spend hours upon hours prepping things in the prep kitchen, prepping, you know, 20, 30 pounds of chicken or pork loins that she was trimming up. So when it comes to butchering at home and bringing home carcasses, once it's broken down into quarters and it's no longer an animal and it's just meat, she has no problem with it whatsoever and has never been an issue that has made her squeamish or concerned at all. It's only when it's in animal form that is something that she's just a little less impressed with. There is a transformation that happens that, and it's, it's tough to put that on there. Even I think people that are avid hunters, there's a, there's a point when, it goes from being an animal to being meat at that point. And for some people, it can tip closer to after the shot. And I think that just comes with experience as well. Like, you shoot the animal once it's, you know, expired, once it's dead. Some people can make that switch. But, yeah, you get someone, you know, newer where then, you know, they don't see the quarter at that point. They see the living creature like you were mentioning that's a that's a tough situation there so yeah you had to figure out at what point can i bring this in i have to go quarter so that she can they can see this it can't go half because it looks too much like the animal itself that's a that's a delicate balance i'm sure it is and that's like you mentioned everyone lands at a different point in the spectrum of from what's on the plate to what's in the field or just even domestic animals of what's walking around on the farm or in a feedlot and where people are comfortable with starting the connection with their food. You know, everyone's okay with eating something that's on a plate because that's the end destination. And regardless of where it started, okay, it's just a meal. But more and more so, I really think now more than almost any time recently in history, people are opening their eyes to seeing the process earlier on and being more aware of where their food comes from. Now, obviously, the vast majority of people don't hunt and source it themselves, but at least there is a little bit more curiosity and willingness of learning a little bit earlier in the process 
of where your food starts and what your food is, as opposed to only being focused on what's in the styrofoam pack at the grocery store or what's on your plate. And so do you see that that be the niche for the blog that you've created? Because you, you run the gamut on a lot of articles on there. I, I saw one on there. You were talking about a specific cartridge you were using. And then the next one was, hey, here's how I'm using a piece of elk that, uh, that I got off this, this recent hunt. With Live Wild, Eat Wild, what's the niche that you're going for? Like, who's your audience that you're aiming for? aiming at really focusing on the food product side of hunting and fishing is really my primary focus and the reason being you know when i first started live wild eat wild i just wanted to you know kind of be a hunting and fishing blogger and start an instagram account and post about my hunting and fishing trips and adventures and things like that and again it was my wife's encouragement that she said you know well you're always the annoying person that's taking pictures of your food all the time. Why don't you just focus on the food aspect of it? And it was something, you know, I've had this going for, oh, almost four years now. And it's been in that span that kind of the wild game food scene has really blown up and expanded quite a bit from when I first started. There really wasn't a lot of people out there doing that. And in talking it through with, Uh, a few friends of mine and family as well, you know, just being a hunting page doesn't really differentiate you from anything else. So I said, okay, well, I can still talk about all things hunting and fishing, but really keeping that focus on the food side and being focused on utilizing every piece of the animal and really doing it justice instead of it being how I kind of grew up as it just a side effect of the trip, you know, a hunting trip for like me this year, I got my elk opening morning. So all of elk season for me lasted two and a half hours with another two and a half hours of packing off the mountain. <laughs> so whole season is boom, over and done with. And in fact, it was less than 24 hours from arriving in camp the night before to getting home. And I was already done and the meat was in the cooler. But that 150 pounds of meat that I generated from that elk is going to be something that I'm interacting with using and enjoying for months and months and months afterwards. So why put so much of your focus on such a very small window of hunting as opposed to something that you're really going to be spending a lot more time with. And that's the food you have in the freezer. Amen. Amen. I'm going to jump back into this elk story in just a moment. Actually, you know what? This is a great, great segue. The recent series that you've had going on with this this elk, which I myself am preparing for an elk hunt in 22. And uh, while I won't be heading out to Utah, I'll be in Montana. Um, you give me hope that, you know what, when we get out there and I'm going to stumble upon an elk in the first two hours and be able to bag that sucker and say like, Hey, cool, let's, let's bring it back to camp and let's start getting the hard work done here. So you give me hope in that. I'm sure it's going to be a little bit more drawn out, but at that point you took this elk that you recently got. And not only did you lay out like, this is what this animal weighed, 
but then you then broke it down into, well, this was the usable meat that I have. And from that, I created this series of, of products. And you actually issued out uh, weights for each of those and how you broke that down. What kind of system, and I guess this is a little bit on the home butchery side, what's your thought process when you bring an animal in, when you're bringing the quarters in, do you have a mental cut list that you start with? Or what is the beginning process that you go through when butchering an animal? So really my butchering process begins as soon as I take the shot and that I know that I've got an animal down. And really where I have to start with is, okay, how far am I from the trail? How far am I from my vehicle? How far am I from ice? And how far am I from refrigeration? In an ideal world, you know, if I am somehow able to drop an elk right next to a walk-in cooler, then I can take the whole animal, take the hide off, take the guts out, and then hang the entire animal whole in a cooler and be able to dry age it that way without having to do anything else, and then have a controlled butchering environment with every single butchery tool that I've got at my disposal ready and easy to use after the aging process is done. That doesn't very often work, especially when we're talking elk, because they're just such a big animal and often so far from the trail that you have to pack it out on your back. So from there, if you can't take the whole animal out, breaking it down to quarters is going to be your next step and packing it out at that point. If you're really far out and you can't get it on ice anytime soon and it's warm, you know, for me, this elk that I got on the opener of archery season was mid-August. And thankfully, we had a cold front come through that dropped our temps down to the 60s and low 70s on that day. But in archery openers of the past, it's been mid-80s, almost 90 degrees out when we're chasing elk. And... At that point, you're really, really racing against the clock to get the meat cooled down as fast as possible. Because if you don't, it's going to bone sour, especially on that hip joint and along the femur bone where the meat's thickest. And so if you don't open that up and allow air circulation to get in there to help bring the temperature down, then you're going to end up with a massive amount of spoilage of your meat. So that's really the next step is looking at how fast can I get it on ice to start it cooling down? And how long is it going to take me to get it to refrigeration to really cool it down to a safe temperature? So if you're a long, long ways out, then it's not only packing out the quarters, but it's deboning the whole thing so that you can separate out those muscle groups, especially in the hind quarter, to get that cooling down process going, especially if you're faced with multiple pack out trips. You know, if you're going solo or only if you have only one other person with you, then it's multiple trips out. So you've got to debone the whole thing, separate everything, get it in game bags, hang it up in a tree where you've got some air circulation to help with cooling it down, keeping it in the shade. Ideally, kind of the best spot to hang things would be like over a creek in the shade. So you've got the airflow, you've got the cooler air coming off the creek to help cool it down even more and in the shade to really get it as cold as possible. And then it's just still that race against the clock to get it under refrigeration so you can avoid spoilage. So that starts to impact the potential and the variety of cuts that you have that you can use once you're finally back to do the processing yourself and getting it in the freezer. 
really a resourceful endeavor at that point. It's really like you're you're trying to MacGyver any system you can to to be able to to get this out, like you mentioned, getting into shade, getting that bone out. Because um, elk, elk run hot. I talked to a friend and who had been out there, and he has some experience with elk, and they run it like over 100 degrees uh, internally. And yeah. so here you have this massive, you know, hindquarter, you know, at the core of it, that bone, like you said, is is running hot, like 114 degrees, almost hot to the touch. And and now we got to instantly or like get this down as quick as possible. With with this, I've had always an idea of like if I've been served up a situation, like let's say the creek that you were mentioning, hanging the meat over the creek. Is there a point where a 10-minute submerge in the creek would help? Or is that a big no-no? Do you not want to take your quarter and submerge it in that in that colder water? I guess it's got to be fast-moving. If it's stagnant, it's not going to help you. But would that be something like, let's say it's 90 out. You're in one of those warm situations, and you're trying to get this as cool as possible. Would dunking a quarter uh, in or out of the bag be something you'd think about? So at that point, it's that is a scenario where you have to make a judgment call, right? You know, if it's 90 out and you're really battling that heat and if you've got five miles to pack out and you've got to make multiple trips, if you don't do something, it's almost not worth coming back for that meat because it's probably going to be spoiled by the time you get back to it. That being said, in addition to temperature, moisture is the other single biggest issue when dealing with bacteria with your game meat. Keeping it dry and keeping it cool are the two number one things you need to do. Cool is paramount and dry is secondary because bacteria breeds in moisture. So if you've got a wet carcass, that's going to breed bacteria and nasty growth much faster than a dry carcass will. That's why there's things called dry aging. But if you are in that make or break scenario where it's 90 degrees, you don't have much shade, but you do have a creek right there. What I always do as a good backup in my pack is I keep some good heavy duty garbage bags in there as a kind of a catch all. They can be, you know, a rain poncho if I need it. They can carry any gear that I need to keep clean. You know, if I've got, you know, organs or anything else that I'm going to throw down in the bottom of the pack to kind of keep things clean from everything else, I can use the garbage bags as well. But thankfully, I haven't had to do so, but they all they are there for that off chance that they're big enough that I can stick a whole quarter in the garbage bag. I'll even double up the bag and then I can dunk it down in the water to help cool it off. So it keeps it dry or at least mostly dry, but I can still get it down in the water to cool it off if I really need to. After it's dunked for a bit, then you can take it out of those garbage bags, keep it in the game bag and keep it hung up so you get that airflow and circulation without having it sitting soggy and giving the bacteria breeding ground. That's a pro move right there, Stephen. Going with a dry bag scenario, construction bag or, you know, contractor bag, quarter in it, tie it off, get it as tight as you can, get you the shock, the temperature shock at least, to get that cool down while leaving it 
like you said, mostly dry. I mean, you can't fight it. So there's going to be some water at that point. But at the same time, to just get that initial shock to be able to start cooling that down, that's a pro move there. Thankfully, I've never had to do it, but I've already had that process going in my mind of what, how do I address the issue if I run into it? And so it's always good to have those backup plans in place and really thinking through not only practicing shot placement, practicing calling, practicing, you know, moving around windage and not getting winded by an animal, all those different things you do of looking at what if scenarios of the hunt in order to kill something. But you need to have those what if scenarios about, okay, what do I do with the meat afterwards? What do I do if it was a perfect shot and drops on the spot? What if it was not a perfect shot and it goes a little ways? How do I track things? What do I do if it's hot out? What do I do if it's cold out? What if it's wet? What if it's dry? What if I'm in high predator areas? What if I'm dealing with other hunters in the area? You know, there's so many variables involved that are all things to take into consideration about how to handle the meat after the shot that are just as important to consider as the different variables involved before the shot. Man, yeah. The, the whole the whole phrase, now the work begins when you've put the animal down. I think you've just solidified just with those series of questions like what you have to go through to get that off the mountain. We're going to we're going to fast forward and take that saga that you've got this elk down. Uh, you brought it into you were able to chill it down. You've got you got quite a bit of meat just from uh, the readout that I was doing and got it cool. And now we're into the butchering side of it. We're now ready to basically do a DIY, do-it-yourself, at-home butchering uh, saga here. Have you always butchered your animals, or did you start out taking it to a processor? I started out taking it to a processor. That was the way that I was raised that, you know— being so to kind of put it in perspective here in utah for the any legal weapon of the rifle hunts for deer it's only about a 10-day window that the state gives for your general season deer tag for the rifle hunters so it's basically you get a weekend maybe two to get out once a year to try and get your deer tag filled and it's a draw system for those deer tags so rifle hunters usually can only draw a tag maybe once or twice every three years. So it's not going to be an every single year thing. So the the dedication to the craft and an every year type of thing just really isn't that accessible for the rifle hunters. And as such, it was something that, yes, I say I grew up as a hunter, but it wasn't something that I spent the majority of the year doing. And some years I didn't even get to go. And because of that, we didn't have any equipment to butcher at home. We would just drop it by a processor that we knew um, down in a town in central Utah around where I hunted with a lot of my relatives. And it was a processor that they knew, and actually my cousin used to work for him, so a small-town operation that was fairly trustworthy, and we'd drop it with them and call it good. And that was just kind of what I knew as the process of, okay, well, they've got all the tools and equipment that I don't have, and it's such a burden and an onus to take on yourself it's much easier to take it to a processor so that was the process that i had taken well fast forward into my adult years 
and you know the factory farming spotlight that has been shined more and more closely on where your food comes from really knowing every little aspect about your food from start to finish the butchering of doing it yourself was just a natural flow to me and it kind of felt a little weird to i did all the work of figuring out how to kill this animal successfully killing it getting it off the mountain getting it home why am i dropping it at a meat packing plant and letting somebody else take it from there and then i'm handed these little paper wrapped parcels that i'm pretty sure was my animal that i dropped off <laughs> but you know it's this all of a sudden it's this big blank or this big gray area on the process from start to finish that I wasn't a part of and somebody else took over for me. So that's where I said, okay, I'm now going to truly do it from start to finish, you know, from field to table as lots like to say, and really make sure that I'm doing every last little step myself as opposed to, you know, passing it off on somebody else. Well, good on you. Good on you. What's your go-to piece of cutlery? What's the workhorse that when you slap down a big piece of either hindquarter, shoulder, neck, what's the workhorse that's, uh, that's on the table that you're going to do majority of the cutting with? You know, a lot of people really like to get fancy schmancy as far as the knives they use or, you know, they would have their fancy butchery saw or things of that nature, custom ordered knives, which I do have a custom chef's knife that I'm very proud of. But <laughs> the main workhorse that is going to be the knife that I pick up most of the time. And I always tell people, if you're butchering at home, you can really butcher an entire animal with one single boning knife. And the one I use is the Victorinox six inch semi-flex boning knife that, I mean, it's got the, you know, plastic, commercial grade handle it's not especially pretty it's very inexpensive they're about 20 30 bucks and nothing fancy but it's very high quality steel it's a very comfortable safe handle to use big blocky handle to keep your fingers out of the way of the blade and it's got just the amount of flex just enough length of the blade and a skinny enough blade but still hefty enough that it can do every single task that you ask of it and breaking down an animal anywhere from skinning all the way down to cutting individual steaks to package up. So realistically, no one needs to be scared or burdened by the concept of home butchery thinking, okay, I need to go get a grinder. I need to get a vacuum sealer. I need to get a saw. I need to get all these different things. When in reality, all you need is one $20 knife and you can do an entire animal nose to tail with obviously you need some plastic wrap and butcher paper to seal it up in the freezer, but that's really the only equipment you actually need if you're doing a basic breakdown of an animal without getting too fancy. Excellent, excellent. I love that you've gone that route. That's that knife along with its counterpart, the Dexter. Um, those two, like that's that's what I I use myself. Six inch, six and a half inch, and you can. Man, having that semi-flex, you can rake it right along that bone, and you just see that flex go, and that, that blade just holds in. I've snapped two in my entire uh, 
career, I guess, as a as a home butcher butcher, and it's it definitely my fault. I stabbed it into a vertebrae one time to try and take off the whole ver or to cut the whole back at that point, and I just put too much torque on it and just snapped that sucker. But like you said, it's you know twenty bucks, and it's a knife that I had had you know I had paid for it five ten times over and so now tink there it goes well i just ordered another one uh and it you know showed up in a couple more days and then i was able to get the next year that came on through um but yeah having two or three of those is always nice but i love that it's the it's just so utilitarian it's nothing fancy about it you're not spending like you said you're not spending a ton of money you know you have this ornate handle it's just utilitarian it's going to get the job done exactly and that's really what you need when it comes to home butchery is you don't have to get fancy with anything that you're using you need a surface to put the meat on you need a source of refrigeration to store the meat in until you're ready to cut it and then you need something to cut it aside from that anything else that you want on top of that is just extra if you you know even if you're doing ground meat which I'm not one that tends to grind a lot of meat. I try to keep my cuts as simple as possible to minimize the amount of grind that I even have. But you don't actually even need a grinder technically to have ground meat to put in the freezer. You can just continue to chop and chop and chop with your knife. You know, something like a cleaver or a chef's knife is going to work a lot better for that application than a boning knife. But even ground meat, you still don't need a big multi-hundred dollar grinding setup in order to accomplish that. Or if you're just doing a really small amount of ground meat, if you're only doing a deer, maybe two deer a year, or not even that, you can even get one of the old school hand crank grinders. And if you're only doing 10 pounds of ground meat, there's really not a lot of efficiency gained by using a big fancy electric grinder as opposed to a super simple hand grinder that costs you 20, 30 bucks. I think you almost get a better cut with a hand grinder, or at least it gets. I, I, there's not. There's more of a scissor action. I would say when it comes to whatever tendon or connective tissue that does go through in a in a grind, you get more of a scissor action and it, it cuts more versus the mass-produced whatever electric uh, grinders that kind of at that point when it gets full of. A bunch of a bunch of tendon, a bunch of connective tissue. It really does gum up that uh, cutting die down at that one end. And man, that just cleaning that sucker out. If you're not careful enough cleaning things up before it goes through the grinder, it's gonna it's gonna be a headache at the back end when you're trying to make it. Exactly, and that is the one caveat that I do say to people is that you know when it comes to purchasing butchery equipment. You don't need to overspend. As I said, you can start, you can do everything with one single knife if you want to. And a hand crank grinder is going to get the job done really well. But like you mentioned, you do need to be a little more careful as far as trimming things to making sure that the really tough connective tissue, silver skin, things like that aren't left on there to gum up the works. But if you're buying an electric grinder, the first step that I always tell everybody is look at whatever product line you're looking at. If it's Weston, if it's LEM, if it's meat brand, if it's Cabela's, if it's you know any other store brand or anything you're looking at, look find the cheapest one and immediately skip that one. <laughs> <laughs> because 
you're going to find that budget range grinder and they're usually grinders will be either in a wattage of like, this is a thousand watt grinder or 750 watt grinder, or they'll be in horsepower measurements of half, three quarter, 1.5, 2.5 horse grinder. You know, if it's a budget level wattage based grinder, I always say just completely pass that one up because it's going to be more of a headache and not be very effective compared to if you're just going to kick out a little bit more money to get something that's more overpowered than what you would expect. Even if you're only doing, you know, a deer every other year, if you're going to buy an electric grinder, skip the really cheap ones because the components in them are mostly plastic. The gears are not that good. The motor is going to burn up pretty quick if it gets bogged down with connective tissue. You know, all those headache things that, yeah, it might be only 100 bucks instead of 250 but you're probably going to get maybe a couple seasons out of it before it's toast. Same goes with the little attachment for your KitchenAid mixers. You know, they do make a little grinder attachment that can go on those motors. But again, those are 500 watt, 750 watt stand mixers that sure can it grind things. And if you're, if you've got, you know, fully finished trimmed lean meat that you're running through a grinder that's already diced up into one inch cubes. Yeah. Little grinders like that will breeze right through that. But if you're wanting to send bigger pieces of meat through, if you've got like a full shoulder you're grinding up that hasn't been meticulously trimmed, any of those cheap options are just going to bog down and be a giant headache to deal with. This is where we skip efficiency. We skip miles per gallon or whatever <laughs> saving, you know, weight savings here. We want heavy and we want. A lot of power when it comes to to grinder. The bigger, the better in this scenario. Exactly. And so for me, the grinder that I use is a three-quarter horse grinder, and I've found that that number 12 size die puts out and can grind through basically as fast as I can feed the meat into it. I've only ever had it bind up on me once, and that was when I had barely even trimmed much of anything off, and I was just sending you know, 12 inch long pieces of meat through that barely fit through the neck of the hopper on the top and had all sorts of connective tissue in it. So if you're really muscling through and not being, you know, focused on trimming at all, then you can start to bog those down. But even then it's a very rare occurrence, you know, with that same grinder, that's the one that I used to process my dad's bison. A couple of years ago, I butchered a friend of mine's moose and it was able to go through, you know, for that moose, I think we had well over 100 pounds of grind that came off. And it was able to blast through all of that perfectly fine without getting bogged down even once. So going to that three-quarter horse range or even the one horsepower, yeah, it's going to cost a little bit more to fork up the cash for it. But it's overbuilt and over-engineered with all steel gears and components to it. You know, as long as you're buying from a reputable brand, any of those that I listed, um, you know, the Cabela's Carnivore series, the Weston series, LEM, um, meat brand, they're all well-built commercial grade equipment that's going to last you basically a lifetime of even fairly heavy, consistent use. And then you're just not going to have to worry about it. And the old adage of buy once, cry once really applies when we're talking grinders. You bet. For your burger, do you cut in fat? 
And what fat do you cut in if you do? It all depends. And it kind of gets back to what I was mentioning earlier of trying to keep as much variety as possible on the end product that I'm aiming for. When at all possible, I keep all my grinding to a bare minimum so that I'm only grinding basically the trim that comes off the animal that for sure there's no other use for it other than grind. So if I'm squaring off, you know, a roast, if I've got some trimmed bits from the shoulder, things like that, all of that's for sure going to be ground and go in the grind pile to be frozen as brine. After that, a lot of the muscle groups I'll keep whole, even if I likely will be grinding them down the road, but at least I have that option of not grinding it. So I can choose to grind it or not, but it's all up to the meal at hand of if I'm looking in the freezer and saying, what do I want to make? You know, I could have a whole roast that I could smoke the whole roast. I could cut it to steaks. I could grind it up and make burgers out of it. There's all the different options that I have at my disposal instead of deciding everything at the butchering process. And the same goes to what fat I'm going to cut into it. If I'm planning on doing hamburgers with my ground meat, or I like to call it kind of the multi-purpose ground meat, I'll usually do a 80-20 mix-in of either beef or pork fat to the grind just because I like to have a little bit of fat in it. A lot of people are purists. They say, no, don't cut in any fat whatsoever. Why would you contaminate wild game with some cut in fat? And for me, I've got a friend of mine actually who I was able to hang the elk in his walk-in cooler. Uh, His name's Tom. You can find him on his Instagram at a home harvest. And he does all sorts of butchering classes. We work together all the time on things. And so he raises pigs and has raised cows. So I'm able to, I usually get half a pig from him every year and have the pork fat that I've trimmed myself from a hand raised pig that I can then grind into the meat. Or he has a couple cows that he raises every year or so. And for this elk, he had a little bit of leftover pork or beef fat that was in the freezer that I was able to use. So yes, I'm contaminating wild game with, quote-unquote domestic fat but i like to think that it's about as high quality of domestic fat as you can possibly get so there's no problem whatsoever in incorporating fat into your wild game be a purist if you want to and go no fat i personally if it's going to be a multi-purpose or hamburger fat i do the 80 20 if i am unsure about the ground and how i'm going to use it if i'm thinking well maybe i'll do sausage maybe i'll do regular burger but I don't really know. That's when I'll just keep it uncontaminated <laughs> and without anything else added to it. Because if I'm going sausage, then I for sure want to use pork fat as opposed to beef fat. And I'll usually even go even like a 75-25 or maybe even higher than that on the fat ratio for sausage. And then I've got, you know, grinding it additional steps to get it more fine instead of more of a coarse grind for burgers. But Again, it all gets back to how much versatility and availability do I have in the freezer without committing to a meal all the way back at the beginning of butchering. Because once you go down that route, you know, if you've done a double grind with 30% pork fat added into it, well, congratulations, you just committed to making sausage because (laughs) you're not going to be able to go backwards and make a roast out of it. I guess you can make meatloaf, but again... 
you kind of are sending yourself down a path that it's really hard to go back from if you want to have a roast or steaks down the road, but you already committed to grinding everything. Right, right. How dare you, Stephen? How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm I'm well in your boat as well. Um, I had a conversation with somebody, and what you're real like your whole explanation on the idea here is versatility. The idea here is I am trying to plan for a number of meals where maybe my middle of the road is the 80-20 with a domestic fat, be it pork or uh, beef, but at the same time to have some like untouched where it is straight protein at that point where I guess leanness would be like right around that 95%. But then at the same time, with Blackstones getting the way they are, have you ever had a 60-40 burger? I was challenged by, uh, well, I'm blanking on her name, but uh, Girl Carnivore. I did a podcast with her quite a while ago, and she said, hey, you need to make a couple pounds of 60-40 burger where you've got that much fat into it, and you put that on a screaming hot Blackstone, I tell you, that crisp, the char, it's it's one of like the best diner burgers that you can make with just with that much fat. Now, I mean, it does, it runs all over that Blackstone. Um, so make sure you got take your buns and you put it right there and all that rendered fat. But, oh, man, what an experience that was. I like that. I'm going to have to try that. I would say... Some of my smash burgers probably end up pretty close to that because what I like to do is, you know, I'm forming up the patties and, you know, smash burgers being what they are, you are going to smush them out more, but I'll still kind of form up the patties to an extent and then pop them back in the freezer to get them as cold as possible so that you can get a max amount of crisp without completely overcooking them. And then what I'll do is I keep a jar of bacon fat in the fridge from all of the, um, homemade bacon that I make from Kevin the pig. That's his name every year is Kevin. (laughs) Same name, just new generation. I love it. Yep. Every year Tom raises either five or six pigs and all of them are named Kevin. And every single year they're all just named Kevin. So I've got all of that amazing Berkshire um, pork fat that renders off from the bacon that I make. And so I keep it in the jar in the fridge. And as I'm popping it in the freezer, I'll spread some bacon fat on the top of the burger patties and then throw it on the grill. So that bacon fat kind of renders out and we'll put a little dollop of it on the grill before smushing the patty on as well. So that really helps to bump up the fat levels and acts as a cooking oil as well as awesome bacon flavor into the patty itself without even having to technically add bacon to it. If you don't have bacon on hand to make a bacon cheeseburger. It's amazing how that smokiness, like just from that rendered pork fat, like just works its way in. Man, you're just, you're talking my language here, Stephen. Just wanted to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review, uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? 
email us at huntivore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company, who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. I want to get into now the, the the story that really got me into following almost weekly with uh, with your blog, and that was the story of you and your father going and pursuing. Is it was it a Utah bison, or yes. were you in a different? You were, it was a Utah bison. Twenty years of putting in tags. This is a lifetime event, and a trip with your dad to go do this lay this story out for us so here in utah we've got five different species when you apply for your permits that are deemed once in a lifetime there's moose rocky mountain bighorn sheep desert bighorn sheep mountain goat and american bison and when you apply as a resident you can only apply to one of the five and every year that you don't draw you build a point so that's the Western point system in a nutshell for you that every single year, if you don't draw, you get a point, which is basically another name in the raffle that if they're pulling out the, the bingo lottery of who gets a tag, the more years you're in, you get a ever so slight advantage of getting more points and more names in the hat. And then when they go to allocate the tags, half of the tags go to whoever has the most points. And then the other half are a true random pull based on the number of names in a hat that you've got from the draw system. So you have a slight chance that even without being a max point holder, you can still draw, but it's very slim. So 20 years goes by of my dad applying for bison. And here in Utah, we're one of the only states in the country that have true free range bison herds that are on public land, unadulterated herds that aren't really messed with by people other than biologists following them around and, you know, making sure that the herds are healthy, that they're not getting disease issues. They do blood work, things like that, but they're true free range public land bison. And we can have either, they have bull tags, but they also have cow tags. The cow tags are a little easier to draw because they're a little bit smaller than the bulls. But, I mean, when it really comes down to it, a bison's a bison. and <laughs> They're all big. So, <laughs> And looking at those draw odds, you know, 20 years goes by. My dad still hasn't drawn a tag. And we were looking at the DWR publishes the draw odds for all of the species, all of the hunts, all of the seasons. And... He was still, you know, to be considered max points for a bull tag was like 24 to 25 points, which doesn't sound too far off. But for that given hunt, they give six tags a year. And at each point level, there was something like almost 100 people. So even though he was at 20 points, the, the people that had 21 points, there was 100 different people that are fighting over six tags and so on and so forth. So he was looking at well over a decade in advance 
of ever having a shot at drawing a bull tag on some of the more sought after positions. You know, the Henry Mountains here in Utah is the one that everyone knows about as A, it has some of the biggest mule deer in the world, and B, it's got the longest standing bison herd aside from Yellowstone of anywhere in the United States. So that's what everyone knows about, and that's where he had applied for a long, long time. But a little over a decade ago, I want to say, maybe 15 years ago, the state had relocated and kind of restarted a herd out on the book cliffs, which is on the border between Utah and Colorado, which is, I want to say, maybe 100 miles north of the Henry Mountains that is right by the Ute Indian Reservation. And they restarted a herd out there as great habitat for bison. Used to be out there, had been wiped out, you know, 100 years ago, but they started a herd back up. And the herd absolutely flourished and did amazingly well out there. And the draw odds for that area were a little bit better. And herd numbers were improving year over year, even faster than the Henry Mountains were. So a number of years back, he shifted his application strategy and said, I'm going to go cow only for the book cliffs as opposed to the hunter's choice tag down on the Henry Mountains, which was bull or cow that you could choose with that tag, which was a harder one to draw, but you had an option of a big bull. And by stepping down on the quote unquote quality or trophy caliber, all of a sudden the opportunity to draw became much more achievable. So he ended up actually being a max point holder at 20 points to pull that mid-October tag for a cow hunt on the Henry Mountains, even though there's only six people that were able to draw that tag. So it was something that we didn't know for sure that he was going to be a max point person looking at the previous year's odds. Thought we were going to be pretty close, so said, okay, let's go ahead and give it a shot. Hopefully we can get it done. We talked to guides, talked to biologists prior to applying, and they said, no, that's a really good season to be aiming for because it's after the heat of the summer, it's before the snow hits. Because once the snow hits, you know, all bets are off as far as where the herd goes. They could go anywhere, and they're really tough to track down in the snow. But that's a, a good, safe season to apply for. It's an any legal weapon hunt, so you can use any weapon you want to. You're not restricted to muzzleloader archery, which will make your harvest odds much lower. So everything lined up, got the applications ready to go. And then really it was the sitting and waiting game because here in Utah, even though you get your applications done in early spring, they don't give you your results until towards the end of May. So it's just the waiting game, waiting and waiting game to see, did you draw, did you not? And then boom, got the news that he was one of only six people to get a tag. And it's one of, you know, even statewide across both the book cliffs and Henry mountains and Antelope Island, there's only a couple dozen bison tags that are issued. So it really was a very, very rare opportunity with a true once in a lifetime hunt that we were super excited to go after. That's incredible, man. It turns into a numbers game at that point. You got to be not only good at, at stalking an animal, but you got to be good with books and accounting to just even get the opportunity to do that. What was the hunt very much like? So. Yeah. What was the hunt like? Then at that point, you got you got the tag now, and the opportunity for, for you and your dad to go out. What was the hunting party? Was it just you and your dad, or was there a couple other people along with you? So on the opener, my 
uncle and cousin both came with. They're both professional hunting guides and have been for most all their lives. My uncle's largely retired from that side of things and just goes out for fun anymore. But my cousin still guides all the time. Uh, they're both based out of Richfield, Utah. And interestingly enough, neither of them had ever guided a bison hunt on the book cliffs. So they both done many bison hunts out on the Henry Mountains, which is where the majority of bison hunts have been. But coming out to the book cliffs, they're saying, you know, we're just along for the ride at this point because we don't have any professional insight that we can give on this side. But uh, they were both able to come out. I came with and then my brother-in-law was able to come out on the opener as well and stay for that first weekend for uh, the five of us to go out and kind of divide and conquer to try to track down the herd. And that was the true challenge is that the book cliffs unit that his tag was for six tags issued. And it was, I want to say something around like 900,000 acres that the entire unit covered. And the estimated herd size was about 300 animals covering almost a million acres on some very rough, rugged country. So it's literally a needle in a haystack, considering the average herd size is, you know, 30 to 40 animals in a herd. So you've got less than a dozen herds running around on a million acres out in the middle of nowhere, where it's a four hour drive from my house. And you've got to try to track down where they're moving when they're nomadic animals moving all the time can be covering five, 10 miles a day and try to head them off to figure out where they're going, where they're watering, where they're feeding, and then also finding one that you want to put your tag on. So it really became a needle in a haystack hunt of trying to figure out where they even were and took a number of scouting trips out there, talked to biologists that gave lots of really good information of, you know, historically, here's some good areas to look. They even gave GPS coordinates of where, People had found them in the past. I put it out there on my social media uh, through Live Wild, Eat Wild, through a number of Facebook hunting groups, things like that, uh, to share the information out. And when it comes to a bison hunt, it's amazing how helpful people are to share any and every piece of information they've ever had because they all get, you know, it's not something that, you know, you've got a, a bison honey hole that you're trying to hide from somebody. <laughs> yeah, right. If you've had the tag, you're never going to get it again. And if you haven't had the tag, you're probably not going to get it anytime soon either. So it's not like you've got a trophy animal you're trying to hide away for you to get the next year. So we really got inundated with information from so many people. I even had people sending me the exact coordinates of, hey, I killed my cow two years ago at this exact spot. There's a watering hole here. There's a feeding area here. So I was using the Onyx Hunt app to coordinate all of these GPS coordinates to build out a full map of everything and anything on the unit that we could use as a reference point to have an educated direction of where to go, both scouting and then during the hunt itself, to get the best game plan in place possible. Because the last thing we wanted to do on a true once-in-a-lifetime hunt is to eat tag soup. Because on these once-in-a-lifetime Utah hunts, if you get the tag but do not fill it, you are ineligible to apply ever again. So it's not like if you, oh, I didn't kill one this year, I can reapply. Nope. Once you're given the tag, that's it. So it was pretty stressful to know that 
okay, this is our one shot at getting it done. If we don't get it done, that's that, you know. For me, my once-in-a-lifetime application has been on moose, so my dad's the only one in the family putting in for bison. So if he doesn't get one, no one in the family ever gets a bison, basically. Man. And so all that information that we got thinking, you know, okay, we've got all these watering holes, these guzzlers, all these reference points from people, including the biologists that spend basically a good chunk of their lives out there of saying, you know, here's some water here, water here, water is key to finding the bison. They've got a drink out in the desert there. You know, it's up high elevation, high heat summer area where water is at a premium. So if you can find the water, you're going to be good to go. Well, we get out there in 2020, aside from 2021 being the worst drought year on record, 2020 was almost as bad. And almost every single coordinate position that was given to us saying, here's a guzzler, they always water here, or here's a pond, they water here. Every single one we went to was bone dry. And wow. so scouting, we never turned up the herd, even though everyone they talked to said, oh, yeah, you're going to find them. They're really easy to find. You know, they'll find a big old herd of bison right over the ridge. Just drive the area. It's a road hunt almost. You're, you're bound to turn them up. All scouting. Didn't see anything. Saw tracks, saw poop, but that was it. Opener of the hunt comes and goes. And opening day, we saw one calf all by itself, you know, 500 yards away that we sat and watched it for a good 30 minutes or so thinking, you know, where's the rest of the herd? There's this calf all by itself. And the only thing that we could think of is that either it just got separated by a predator or its mom had been killed either by a predator or by an earlier season hunter and it was off on its own because the herd we didn't find much of the tracks around it we didn't see any other animals with it and that was the only bison we saw the entire first day and day after day went by you know hunt started on a saturday i had enough time off to stay until monday night and so we hunted all day saturday all day sunday all day monday and did not see a single bison anywhere and had covered hundreds of miles in the truck, dozens of miles on our feet going all over the unit, every different coordinate point that people said, go here, go there. You're always going to see them here. or You'll always see them here. And it was just swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss. Didn't find anything anywhere. And we were getting so pessimistic, I would say. I wouldn't say completely given up by any means because we still had well i want to say it was either a 10 or 14 day season for his tag so my dad had blocked out the entire time frame to hunt every single day if we needed to to get it done but you know three days in and we had two vehicles going around where me my dad and brother-in-law were in his truck and my uncle and cousin took their truck to divide and conquer to try to locate the herd and they didn't find anything we didn't find anything we were in contact with a hunting guide that had a client with the same tag and they didn't find anything either that opening weekend. So we're all scratching our heads saying, where are the bison? <laughs> There's gotta be one somewhere, not even seeing one aside from a cat all by itself. Right. And then it got to the point where I eventually had to get back home to go to my day job and couldn't take the whole week off. So I drive back home late, late, late that night to get back to work a couple of days and my dad stayed the next day to hunt then he packed up to come back home and resupply for a day or two 
And then that Friday we went back out and we were going to drive down Thursday night, but instead decided to just go out and leave at around four in the morning on Friday morning and just start the four hour drive out there. And the one nice thing about bison hunting is it's not like deer elk where you're really focused on early morning or the evening where they're, you know, deer elk being crepuscular animals that they are, where they're focused around early and late light. Bison are a lot like antelope where they're up and about doing things all day long and they don't really care about early or late light. So you can hunt them all day long, which is helpful because they're, really out in the open they're not scared of anything they're just gonna sit out there chew their cut after they're fed kind of graze around do their thing all day long so we knew okay well we can still get down there at you know 7 38 in the morning when lights hit and still have that whole day to hunt and in our scouting and looking around areas we found one spot where there was a little chunk of private land where some cattle ranchers had fenced off the barbed wire. And in one section of fence that was smashed down, there was all this bison hair stuck in the barbed wire. And we saw this highway of tracks going into this private land. In all of my internet sleuthing and networking to talk to anybody that I could possibly find and using OnX to find the name of the landowner, I was actually able to get the phone number of the cattle rancher that was out running cattle on the unit and was able to talk to him and he said oh yeah the cat the stupid bison come through every day and knock my fence down every day i have to go back and put it back up because they're coming through (laughs) and they're hitting my water that we truck in to give to the cattle because everything's dry and they've got to use a big water truck to bring in once a week to replenish the water supply yeah so the bison being tough, hardy animals they are. They found out where that water was and were bulldozing through that fence to get to it and going right in. And so I said, hey, you know, would you be willing to write a permission note to let some bison hunters onto your property? And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Except the book clips is also a limited entry deer unit. And he's like, I already gave permission to a couple of deer hunters they had a limited entry tag to chase the deer on the unit because the deer are hitting the water as well. It's like once they tag out and once they're done, then I'll let you on. But I don't want to have two people competing with each other on the, I want to say it was, you know, 300, 500 acre plot that he had fenced off. Right. I said, okay, well that's fair. We don't want to be stepping on each other's toes. So our game plan when we got back down Friday was, Hey, we know they're going through this guy's fence. Let's just sit on this spot where they're going through the fence and hopefully we can catch them when they're coming through. And we could see the spot they were coming through. And then on the east side of his property was where they had also looked like they had been going through. So we made the judgment call to sit on the south side where the biggest highway of tracks had been plowed through and sat there all morning. You know, I kind of went over the ridge to glass on a, a separate draw, whereas my dad, being the hunter, was overlooking the main area where we expected him to come from, and sat there all morning until about 11. Nothing, 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 nothing turned up. So we said, hey, let's take a new tactic and leapfrog in the truck back and forth each of the sides of the property where we expect them to come 
and basically sit for 10, 15 minutes in one, buzz back around in the truck to the other, sit, go back and forth, and did so for the rest of that morning. And went back around to the east side, didn't see anything there coming up the valley, hung out for a bit, went back around to the south side, watched it for a bit, nothing was coming up. And it was a big enough area on both sides, we figured, you know, it's going to take them probably 30 minutes or so to work their way up the valley if they are coming through on either of those valleys. So if we're sitting for 15, then we can go back and forth and make sure that we're catching them so they don't go right past us unnoticed. And then finally, on I think it was the third time back over, we went back over to the east side of the property and come up and over the hill on the road in the truck and look off in the distance and here is a wall of bison coming our way. There was a herd probably 30, 40 strong coming straight at us right up the valley. So we're able to quick pull over, hop out, get, grab the gun basically. I grab the camera and binos and leave everything else in the truck and work our way over along the juniper tree line and get set up, get the shooting sticks up. And just as we get sit down and established, here comes the herd single file kind of spread out through the sagebrush coming exactly perpendicular to us, wind in our favor, light in our favor. You know, we're protected by this juniper right there where they can't even see us and are headed straight to the water to set up with a perfect perpendicular broadside shot. And then it was just a matter of, okay, where's the cows versus where's the bulls? Because he had a cow only tag. So the last thing you want to do is to accidentally shoot a bull instead of a cow. Because as much as you think that it would be pretty easy to tell the difference, you know, bison are bison. All of them have horns. All of them are really big, brown, shaggy animals. And when they're in, you know, chest-deep sagebrush where you can't check under the, you know, under the legs, so to speak. You can't lift the skirt. Yeah, can't lift the skirt, can't look and really be sure unless you get a break in the cover it was just a little bit of waiting and looking and what really helped us is that the lead animal which was actually which ended up being the lead cow was out in front completely unobscured by anything else and then right behind it was the lead bull of the herd and those two were very visually different from each other and as soon as i saw that the second one was a bull where they have much more of an established mane of you know big shaggy head and shoulders with much thinner fur behind and then the big old tuft hanging down underneath then we could compare that to the lead cow and see okay smaller horns much less robust of a frame not as shaggy then we could see underneath nothing hanging down clear visibility without any sagebrush blocking the view and most importantly there weren't any other animals behind to worry about a path through shot hitting multiple animals because all the rest of the herd that was behind was bunched up pretty tight and working the way up because they had a couple of calves in the herd. There were some other younger bulls mixed in. So they were all pretty tight together. And aside from that lead cow, really there's nothing else giving a clear shot. And the icing on the cake was a lead cow, you know, pretty good horn size and very respectable trophy wise and healthy body size. So at that point it was a done deal of, okay, that's the one to take. Got the rangefinder, ranged it at just over 100 yards was all, and my dad was hunting with a Remington 700 in a um, 338 Remington Ultramag, 
shooting 250 grain bolts, just over 3,000 feet per second. So he was armed and ready to go with about the biggest gun that you can shoot, aside from going up to like a you know 416 Rigby or a 50 BMG or things like that, right. and really making sure that he had as much firepower as possible to knock down his bison as fast as possible because aside from not being able to fill the tag, the last thing you want to do is to be to shoot something and not have it drop and have to try and track it out in the hot desert, which thankfully mid October, it wasn't too hot out for us, but still want to make sure that we're putting it down as fast as we can. And a credit to just how tough those animals are, even with a, you know, one of the bigger hunting rifles out there, and he was shooting Barnes bullets that are solid copper bullets designed for maximum penetration and damage. And it took three shots to put his bison down. I was just going to ask though, how many shots did it did it take? At that moment, it's like if it's within that 100 yards, like, you know, you make your first shot, it's like reload, put another one until it stops moving at that point. Exactly. And that's what my uncle recommended, even though – He's like, you know, I haven't hunted this unit, but he had been on, I want to say, about a dozen bison hunts throughout his guiding career. He's like, the number one thing I will tell you is just keep shooting until it goes down because they are very tough animals. Lung shots are actually the fastest way to drop them because they have such big lungs because they are such strong, cardio-focused, long-mileage-covering animals. If you can you know, punch a hole in both lungs, they're going to go down pretty quick. And even despite their upwards of a thousand pound size, a lung shot will still drop them just as quick as even a small whitetail. But even then he's like, just keep shooting and don't wait to see if your first shot dropped them because bison, and a lot of people don't know this, but they can outrun a domestic horse and are faster than any horse that any people will own. They can easily hit 35, 40 miles an hour, and they can hold that speed for miles upon miles. So if you spook the herd, it ain't going to stop. stop It's just going to go. (laughs) And B, the other issue is all the bison look very similar. So unless you've got a visible bleeding animal to get a follow-up shot on, their natural instinct is to bunch up for safety and then hightail that out of there and just haul ass until – they forget why they're running. <laughs> it's basically what my uncle liked to say. He's like, bison, once you spook them, they'll just pick a line and just point east and then just keep going until they look around and say, hey, why are we running? And then they'll stop and just keep feeding and then go back to what they're doing. And before they know it, they're 10 miles away. So first shot was a solid broadside shot that I'm not sure if it was the first or the last shot that actually took out part of the heart. But then the second shot might have missed and sent it over the back. And you could actually, in the video, you can hear it ricochet off of the rocks behind it of this bang. And then the second shot was also a solid shot. All four or all three of the shots that he hit were all within about six inches of each other on the broadside vital area of the animal. And well, one being a little bit further back towards the back end of the ribs, but still caught everything you would want it to. Yeah. And so first shot was good, second missed, third shot was good, and then fourth shot dumped it on the spot and dropped it to the ground. So thankfully, the rest of the herd, as soon as he started shooting, all of them bunched up 
but his cow, because it was already out in front of the herd, started to run off away from the herd and then turned around a little bit back towards facing it, but stayed completely clear of all other animals. There wasn't any overshoot issues or over penetration issues to worry about, kept clean broadside shots the whole time and dropped within about 20 yards from its original shot point to where we were. So even though, yes, it did take three shots, it was still from first shot to last shot of it dropping and dying was a matter of seconds apart from each other. Wow. What, what an entire saga, uh, that, that, that took like, I'm, like as I'm as you're telling me the story, like I, I just feel myself tensing up, like as you as you're doing this search for the bison, and then to finally get onto it, like I feel like this relief, like oh, we we finally got it, Stephen. This has been an awesome awesome time. I want to wrap up. We're gonna go instead of a two dish breakdown. That's my normal crescendo. I want to go with a lone dish. I want I want to know. What was your best dish off of that bison that you were able to share with your dad? So my favorite, and it's something that I always fall back on, and there's two reasons behind it. The first being that it truly is probably the best tasting dish that I consistently make that has the most appeal to the most people. But the second being that it uses the cut that everyone absolutely hates on all the time and me being the contrarian that I am, I'm always trying to push people outside of their comfort zone and utilizing cuts that they normally wouldn't. And so my go-to and the one that I enjoyed the most from that bison was making asabuco out of the shanks. And people hate shanks. They say they're tough. They're a pain in the ass to trim. They're just a giant headache to deal with. So I end up grinding them. Well, I'll be the first to say in a lot of other wild game culinary minds out there have joined on board of advocating to don't grind your shanks instead braise them and slow cook them and over time all that connective tissue melts out and just makes an absolutely delicious sauce into the basically a stew that you're making with those shanks and so it's something that is incredibly tasty it's very easy to make as well it's not a super labor-intensive dish that if you really want to, you can just throw all the ingredients in a crock pot and call it good, and you'll be good to go. And then you can serve it over mashed potatoes, you can serve it over polenta, and it just makes the most rich, flavorful, delicious stew with this super tender, juicy, delicious, slow-cooked meat that also by using a saw to cut up the shanks into basically individual portion discs, it makes a nice little serving presentation as well. So each person gets their own individual piece and you can cook them whole if you want to for bison shanks. I mean, each piece was like <laughs> almost plate size on its own. So, Oh, I even can't even imagine that would be so a little cool. bit too much for some people that we had over for dinner to eat on their own, but it's really an absolutely phenomenal dish that is very easy to make. It's not got a lot of fancy ingredients to it. I mean, simple stew, basically, of, you know, carrots, celery, onion, some tomato stock, um, or some game stock, some tomato paste. You can deglaze with either you're going to use you know, white wine or just stock, or I like to use a little bit of orange juice in there with a little orange zest 
as a little bit of a citrus brightness to it, adding some herbs and then just letting it cook down over time is, you know, it's not rocket science. It's not a big fancy complex dish that you're going to be slaving away using a thousand pots and pans and making a giant mess of your kitchen. You know, I usually do it in an enamel Dutch oven because that way you can kind of brown the meat, set it aside, add your veggies, build your stock, build your sauce, then add the meat back in. But if you're really wanting to keep it simple, you can just scrap all of that, throw all the ingredients in a crock pot, turn it on, go to work and be done and come home, make up some mashed potatoes or polenta or rice or whatever you want, whatever starch you want to serve it with. And it can be a super easy crock pot meal that you don't even have to stress about. And it's still going to knock the socks off of anybody and has a very balanced flavor profile to where it's not going to be some crazy game dish that is going to scare away a non-hunter too. So it's not only a special occasion meal that we really enjoyed with my dad's bison, but it's my wife's favorite game meal of all that she requests over anything else. She's requesting something. And it's one that is my go-to if I have a non-hunter that I'm introducing to wild game for the first time, because I know that it's something that it's very unassuming. It's, well enough known at plenty of Italian restaurants serve it. Some people know the dish. It's normally made with regular beef, so it's not going to scare people away with anything crazy or unique or weird, but it's a rock-solid, extremely tasty dish that anybody's going to enjoy. Oh, yeah, man. That's a rib sticker, and it just it's a classic. I Here in the Midwest, like it was all of a sudden like, oh, there's a fancy version of our normal pot roast. Like <laughs> where you just stick the whole shank in, but to do the the discs, like you said, it really does add it, and I think it it opens it up too. So like if that marrow, if you get the one the one piece that sticks together, and the marrow just kind of hangs inside of the hole of that bone, and you're able to spoon that out, I mean that's that extra treat there that you've just uncovered. Absolutely. You mentioned saw. Um, I with whitetails here in Michigan, I find that if I cut the meat all the way around down to the bone, so now essentially if I've exposed the bone, I try to keep it as cold as possible when I'm when I'm going to cut these. Um, I have a dedicated uh, reciprocating saw blade that actually lives in the kitchen. So my basically my sawzall comes into the kitchen. I get, it gets a good wash over, like I'm washing any other kitchen utensil put in that blade and I you know that bone is seconds it just it just cuts through are you using a an old school hand saw or are you you into the reciprocating saw stuff I've gone the reciprocating saw route before but since I personally don't have one probably should get one it's always an excuse to get a new tool but <laughs> I just go the regular old hand bone saw that I've gotten the LEM brand the meat brand hand saws before you know 30 bucks or so for either an 18 or a 22 inch handsaw. And, you know, if you're doing bison sized animals, having a longer saw is really helpful, especially if you're doing like whole rib breakdown to cut ribs and keeping a nice straight line on that side. But for cutting shanks, small 18 inch handsaw, basically a hacksaw with a dedicated meat blade is all you're going to need. And you can blitz through it pretty quick. Not as fast as a, a sawzall that's definitely an awesome way to do it but yeah it's something that again it gets back to oh sawed up 
bone-in cuts is something that intimidates a lot of people and say, oh, only, you know, fancy commercial butchers can do that sort of fancy stuff. Well, no, I can do it in my kitchen on my cutting board with no other equipment other than a $30 saw that I got off Amazon and does just as good a job. You know, you just got to scrape little bone fragments off a little bit, make sure it's nice and clean, throw it in a vac bag or plastic wrap and butcher paper, and it's just like anything else you get at a fancy custom butcher. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Stephen, this has been an epic night. Um, where can my listeners find a like-minded guy like yourself? Where Where can we find you? Where's your blog at? And uh, can we follow along with you on Instagram? What's your handle? Go ahead and just give us like a you know 30-second, basically selfless plug of where we can find more about you. <laughs> Absolutely. So Instagram's where I live and breathe. Everything carries over to Facebook as well, but Instagram's kind of the name of the game and it's at live wild eat wild is my handle there. Website is livewildeatwild.com. Um you're always welcome if you have questions, comments, concerns, shoot me a DM on Instagram. You can email me at livewildeatwild at gmail.com. Uh but my DMs are always open. You know, I get questions all the time from people of I've got X hunt coming up with X animal. What do I do? Or I just killed X animal and I'm starting the butchering process. I've got questions on, or I've got this cut from another animal. What recipes do I use? I can't always get to every single message all the time because I get a lot in my inbox, but I really do try to get to responding to as many that I possibly can to help people out because it's something that those questions come up all the time and being able to help somebody to answer those questions is very important to me to be able to spread the information and help people because that's ultimately what us as experienced outdoorsmen need to be doing is passing on that information to people to help them to train them up, bring them up as experienced hunters and anglers and wild game cooks as well because if you're not teaching anybody then all the knowledge and experience that you've acquired throughout your own experiences is basically going to waste on only yourself. And that's kind of the root of my goal is to spread as much knowledge and information as I have to as many people as I have, um, I'm able to, whether it be through the social media, through the website. Um, I do a number of expo presentations, seminars, demos, things like that around locally and across the West. But social media is kind of the best way to get that message to as many people. And I really do tap into a lot of the individual messages that I get as inspiration for recipes that I come up with and posts that I put together. You know, if I'm getting a lot of questions from people about what the heck do I do with shanks? I've already made your asabuco, but what else can I do? Or what about bone in cuts of other options? Or what about neck meat? What about ground meat? All those different things. If you've got questions, comments, concerns about any of those topics or anything that you need help with, shoot them my way. Throw them in the comments of any of the posts. I try to read as many of the comments as I can, even though people always say stay away from the comment section because it <laughs> tends to be a dumpster fire. You know, I thrive off of chaos. So throw any and everything that you have at me my way, and I try to help anywhere that I can because that's what it's all about. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Steven, hold on just a second here. I'm going to wrap up our guests, or our, excuse me, our uh, our listeners here. Folks, 
Man, this has been such a treat. We've got to hear an epic story about a lifetime hunt of chasing a bison. But at the same time, we've gotten to dive deep into how am I going to set up my own butchering? What are some things I want to think about? And even getting the animal on the ground begins the process of how to make that venison, that bison, that antelope, heck, even that fish. If you pull it out of the water, like, how do I get this cool? And what are my first steps towards processing it? So this is a lot we've got to think about. I know seasons have started all across uh, our nation so far. Just about ready to kick off here, the archery here in Michigan. So folks, while you're getting out there, be thinking about what you're going to do when that animal goes down. And make sure that that knife that you're going to use to butcher stays sharp.